You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Reincarnation and Karma, Two Fundamental Truths of Human Existence. This is Lecture 2, given in Berlin on January 30, 1912. The thoughts contained in the last lecture will have seemed incomprehensible to many of you in that form. Perhaps they were even matters of doubt. But if we go further into the subject today, they will become clearer. What was it that was presented to us in the last lectures? For the whole of our being, it was somewhat similar to what people accomplish when they are in some position in life where they have to reflect upon earlier occurrences and experiences and call them back into memory. Memory and remembrance are experiences of the human soul, which in ordinary consciousness are really connected only with the course of the soul's life between birth and death, or, more exactly, with the period of time that begins in the later years of childhood and lasts until death. We know that in ordinary consciousness our memory goes back only to a definite point of time in our childhood, and we have to be told about earlier events by our parents, elder relations, or friends. When we consider this stretch of time, we speak of it in relation to the soul life as, in quotes, remembered. It is not, of course, possible here to go more deeply into the meaning of the words, quote, power of remembering, close quote, or, in quotes, memory, nor is it necessary for our purpose. We need only bring clearly before our souls that everything designated by these words is bound up with reflecting on past experience, past events or experiences. What we spoke of in the last lecture is akin to this reflecting, but it must not be equated with ordinary memory. It should be regarded rather as a higher, wider power of memory that leads us beyond this present incarnation to a certain to, to a sense of certainty that we have had previous earth lives. If we picture someone who needs to recall something that was learned at an earlier period of life and attunes their soul to bring out of the depths what was learned then in order to follow it through in the present, if we form a living conception of this process of recollection, we see in it a function that belongs to our ordinary faculty of remembrance. In the last lecture, we were speaking of functions of the soul, but those functions ought to lead to something that arises in our inner being in relation to our earlier earth life, similar to that which arises in our souls in this life when we feel a past experience springing up in memory. Therefore, you must not regard what was said in the last lecture as though this were all that is needed to lead us to an earlier earth life, nor as though it were able immediately to evoke a right conception 
of the kind of people we were in an earlier incarnation. It is only an aid, just as self-recollection is an aid, helping us to draw forth what has disappeared into the background of the soul's life. Let us briefly sum up what we have grasped concerning such a recollection in reference to a former earth life. This can best be done in the following way. A little self-knowledge will render many of life's happenings comprehensible to us. If something disagreeable happens and we do not fully see the reason for it, we may say to ourselves, quote, I really am a careless person and it is no wonder this happened to me. This shows at least some understanding of what has happened. There are, however, countless experiences in life of which we simply cannot conceive that they are connected with the forces and faculties of our soul. In ordinary life we usually speak of them as accidental. We speak of accidents when we do not perceive how the things that befall us as strokes of fate are connected with the inner leanings of our soul, and so forth. In the last lecture, attention was drawn also to events of another kind, experiences through which, in a sense, we extricate ourselves by means of what we generally call our ego from some situation we are in. For example, we may be destined by our parents or near relations to a certain calling or position in life, and we feel we must at all costs leave it and do something else. When in later life we look back on something like this, we say to ourselves, quote, we were put into a certain position in life, but by our own impulse of will, by our personal sympathy or antipathy, we have extricated ourselves from it, close quote. The point is not to pay attention to all manner of things, but to confine ourselves in our retrospective memory to something that vitally affected our life. If, for instance, a man has never felt any desire nor had any motive to become a sailor, a will impulse, such as was referred to in the last lecture, does not come into consideration at all, but only one whereby he actually brought about a change of fate, a reversal of some situation in life. But when in later life we remember something of this kind and realize that we extricated ourselves, we should not cultivate any rueful feelings about it, as though we ought to have stayed where we were. The essential point is not the practical outcome of the decision, but the recollection of when such turning points occurred. Then with regard to events of which we say, quote, this happened by chance, close quote, or, quote, we were in such and such a position, but have extricated ourselves from it, close quote, we must evoke with utmost energy the following inner experience. We say to ourselves, quote, I will imagine that the position from which I extricated myself was one in which I deliberately placed myself with the strongest impulse of will. Close quote. We bring before our own souls the very thing that was repugnant to us and from which we extricated ourselves. We do this in such a way that we say, quote, As an experiment, I will give myself up to the idea that I willed this with all my might. I will bring before my soul the picture of someone who willed something like this with all their might. Close quote. And let us imagine 
that we ourselves brought about the events called, in quotes, accidents. Suppose it has come back to our memory that at some place a stone fell from a building onto our shoulders and hurt us badly. Then let us imagine that we had climbed onto the roof and placed the stone so that it was bound to fall, and that then we ran quickly under it so that it had to fall on us. It is of no consequence that such ideas are grotesque. The point is what we want to acquire through them. Let us now put ourselves right into the soul of the person of whom we have built up such a picture, the person who has actually willed everything that has happened to us, quote, by accident, close quote, who has desired everything from which we have extricated ourselves. There will be no result in the soul if we practice such an exercise two or three or four times only. But a great deal will result if we practice it in connection with the innumerable experiences which we shall find if we look for them. If we do this over and over again, forming a living conception of the person who has willed everything that we have not willed, we shall find that the picture never leaves us again, that it makes a very remarkable impression on us, as though it really had something to do with us. If we then acquire a certain delicate perception in this kind of self-probation, we shall soon discover how such a mood and such a picture built up by ourselves resemble an image we have called up from memory. The difference is only this, that when we call up such an image from memory in the ordinary way, it generally remains simply an image. But when we practice the exercises of which we have been speaking, what comes to life in the soul has in it an element of feeling, an element connected more with the moods of the soul and less with images. We feel a particular relationship to this picture. The picture itself is not of much account, but the feelings we have make an impression similar to that made by memory images. If we repeat this process over and over again, we arrive through an inner clarification at the, in quotes, knowledge, one might say, that the picture we have built up is becoming clearer and clearer, just as a memory image does when one starts to recall it out of dark depths of the soul. Thus it is not a question of what we imagine, for this changes and becomes something different. It goes through a process similar to that which occurs when we want to remember a particular name and it nearly comes and then goes. We have a partial recollection of it and then say, for instance, Nutzbaumer. Then without our being able to say why, the right name comes to us, Nutzdorfer perhaps. Just as here the names Nussbaumer, Nutzdorfer build each other up, so the picture writes itself and changes. This is what causes the feeling to arise, quote, Here I have attained something that exists within me, and by the way it exists within me and is related to the rest of my soul life, it plainly shows me that it cannot have existed within me in this form in my present incarnation, close quote. So we perceive with the greatest inner clarity that what exists within us in this form lies further back. Only we must realize that we are here dealing with a kind of faculty of remembrance which can be developed in the human soul, 
a faculty which, in contradistinction to the ordinary faculty of remembrance, must be designated by a different name. We must designate the ordinary faculty of remembrance as, quote, image memory, close quote. But the faculty of remembrance, now in question, must really be described as a kind of, quote, feeling and experience memory, close quote. That this has a certain foundation can be proved by the following reflections. We must bear in mind that our ordinary faculty of remembrance is really a kind of image memory. Think how a specially painful event that perhaps happened to you twenty years ago reappears in memory. The event may come up before you in all its details, but the pain you suffered is no longer felt to the same extent. It is, in a sense, blotted out by the memory image. There are, of course, different degrees and it may well happen that something has struck us such a blow that again and again a fresh and more intense sorrow is felt when we remember the experience. The general principle, however, holds good. So far as our present incarnation is concerned, our faculty of remembrance is an image memory, whereas the feelings that were experienced or the will impulses themselves do not arise again in the soul with anything like the same intensity. We need only take a characteristic example and we shall see how great the difference is between the image that arises in the memory and what has remained of feelings and will impulses. Let us think of a man who writes his memoirs. Suppose, for example, like Bismarck in writing his memoirs has come to the point when he prepared for the German-Austrian War of 1866 and imagine what may have taken place in his soul at that highly critical point when he led and guided events against a host of condemnations and will impulses. Do not conceive how all this lived in his soul at that time, but imagine that all he then experienced under the immediate impression of the events sank down into the depths of his soul. Then imagine how faded the feelings and will impulses must have become by the time he wrote his memoirs, compared with what they were when he was actually carrying out the project. Nobody can fail to realize what a difference there is between the memory image and the original feelings and will impulses involved. Those who have gone a little way into anthroposophy will understand what has often been said, that our conceptual activity including the conceptual activity related to memory, is something which, when aroused by the external world in which we live in our physical bodies, has meaning only for this single incarnation. The fundamental principles of anthroposophy have always taught us the great truth that all the concepts and ideas we make our own when we perceive anything through the senses, when we fear or hope for anything in life, This does not relate to impulses of the soul, but to concepts. All that makes up our conceptual life disappears very soon after we have passed through the gate of death. For concepts belong to the things that pass away with physical life, to the things that are least enduring. Anyone, however, who has given any study to the laws of reincarnation and karma can readily understand that our concepts, as we acquire them in the life that flows on in relation to the outer world, 
or to the things of the physical plane, come to expression in speech, and that we can therefore, in a sense, connect the conceptual life with speech. Now we all know that we have to learn to speak some particular language in a given incarnation. For while it is obvious that many modern school children incarnated in ancient Greece, none of them find it easier to learn Greek by being able to remember how they spoke Greek in a previous incarnation, speech is entirely an expression of our conceptual life and their fates are similar, so that concepts drawn from the physical world and even the concepts we must acquire about the higher worlds are in a sense always colored by subjective pictures of the external world. Only when we have insight do we realize what concepts are able to tell about the higher worlds. What we learn directly from concepts is also in a sense bound up with life between birth and death. After death, we do not form concepts as we form them here. After death, we see them. They are objects of perception. They exist just as colors and tones exist in the physical world. In the physical world, what we picture to ourselves by means of conceptions carries an impress of physical matter. But in the disembodied state we have concepts before us in the same way as here. We have colors and tones. We cannot, of course, see red or blue as we see them here with our physical eyes. But what we do not see here, and about which we form concepts, is the same for us after death as red, green, or any other color or sound is here. What we learn to know in the physical world purely through concepts, or rather ideas, parenthesis, in the sense of title, the philosophy of spiritual activity, close parenthesis, can be seen only through the veil of the conceptual life. But in the disembodied state, it stands there in the way that the physical world stands before our consciousness. In the physical world, there are people who really think that sense impressions yield everything. What we can make clear to ourselves by means of a concept, as for instance the concept lamb or wolf, embraces everything the senses give us. But that which transcends matter can actually be denied by those who admit the existence of the sense impression only. We can make a mental picture of all we see as lamb or wolf. Now the ordinary outlook tries to suggest that what can here be built up in a conceptual sense is nothing more than a mere idea. But if we were to shut up a wolf and for a long time feed him on nothing else but lamb, so that he is filled with nothing but lamb's substance, nobody could possibly persuade themselves that the wolf has thereby become lamb. Therefore we must say, obviously, here what transcends a sense impression is a concept. Certainly there is no denying that what bodies forth the concept dies, but what lives in wolf, what lives in lamb, what is within them and cannot be seen by the physical eyes, this is seen, perceived, in the life between death and rebirth. Thus when it is said that conceptions are bound up with the physical body, we must not infer that humanity will be without conceptions, or rather without the content of the conceptions in the life between death and rebirth. Only that which has worked out the conceptions disappears. 
our conceptual life as we experience it here in the physical world has significance only for the life of this incarnation. In this connection I have already mentioned the case of Friedrich Hebel, who once sketched out in his diary an ingenious plan for a drama. He had the idea of the reincarnated Plato in a school class, making the worst possible impression on the teacher and being severely reprimanded because he could not understand Plato. Here, too, is a suggestion that Plato's thought structure, all that lived in him as thought, does not survive in the same form in his next incarnation. In order to obtain a reasonable view of these things, we must consider the soul life of the human being from a certain point of view. We must ask ourselves, what do we carry about as the content of our soul life? First, we have our concepts. The fact that these concepts, permeated with feeling, can lead to impulses of will, does not prevent us from speaking of a specific life of concepts in the soul. For, although there are people who can hardly confine themselves to a pure concept, but immediately they conceive anything flare up in sympathy or antipathy, thus passing over into other impulses, this does not mean that the life of concepts cannot be separated from other contents of the soul. Secondly, we have in our soul life experiences of feeling. These appear in a great diversity of forms. There are the well-known antitheses in the life of feeling which can be spoken of as the sympathy and the antipathy we feel for things, or if we want to describe them more emphatically as love and hate. We can say that these feelings produce a kind of stimulus, and again there are feelings that bring about a certain tension and release. They cannot be classed with sympathy and antipathy. For a soul impulse that can be described as a tension, a stimulus, or as a release, is different from what comes to expression in mere sympathy or antipathy. We should have to talk for a long time if it were a question of describing all the different kinds of feelings. To these also belong what may be described as a sense for beauty and for ugliness which is a specific soul content and does not resemble feelings of sympathy and antipathy. At all events, it cannot be classed with them. We could also describe the specific feelings we have for good or evil. This is not the time to enlarge upon the difference between our inner experiences regarding a good or evil action and the feelings of sympathy or antipathy for such actions our love of a good action and hatred of an evil one, thus we meet with feelings in the most diverse forms and we can distinguish them from our concepts. A third kind of soul experiences are the impulses of will, the life of will. This again must not be classed with what may be called experiences of feeling, which can or must remain enclosed within our soul life, according to the way we experience them. An impulse of will says, quote, you shall do this, you shall do that, close quote. For we must distinguish between the mere feelings we have of what seems good or evil to ourselves or to others and what arises in the soul as more than a feeling when we are impelled to do good and to refrain from evil. Judgment can remain rooted in feeling, but the impulses of will are a different matter. 
Although there are transitions between the life of feeling and the impulses of will, we ought not, on the basis of ordinary observation, to class them together, without further consideration. In human life there are transitions everywhere. Just as there are people who never arrive at pure conceptions, but always express simultaneously their love or hatred, who are thrown hither and thither because they cannot separate their feelings from their conceptions, so there are others who, when they see something, cannot refrain from going on, through an impulse of will, to an action, even if the action is unjustifiable. This leads to no good. It takes the form of kleptomania and so forth. Here there is no ordered relationship between the feelings and the impulses of will, although in reality a sharp distinction should be drawn between them. Thus in our life of will we live in ideas, in feelings, and in impulses of will. We have seen that the life of ideas is connected with a single incarnation between birth and death. We have seen how we enter life and build up our own life of ideas. This is not the case with the life of feeling or with the life of will. Of those who insist that it is, one can only think that they can never have observed intelligently the development of a child. Consider a child in relation to the life of ideas before it can speak. It relates itself to the surrounding world through its conceptions or ideas but it has very decided sympathies and antipathies and active impulses of will for or against something. The decisiveness of these early will impulses has actually misled a philosopher, Schopenhauer, into the belief that a person's character cannot be altered at all during life. This is not correct. The character can be altered. We must realize that when we enter physical life, The position as regards the feelings and the impulses of will is in no way the same as it is regarding the life of concepts. For we enter an incarnation with a very definite equipment of feeling, experiences and impulses of will. Correct observation might indeed make us surmise that in the feelings and will impulses we have something that we have brought with us from earlier incarnations then all this must be brought together as a, quote, feeling memory, close quote, in contradistinction to the concept memory that belongs to one life only. We can arrive at no practical result if we take into account only a concept memory. All that we develop in the life of concepts cannot call forth an impression which, if rightly understood, says to us, you have within you something that entered this incarnation with you at birth. For this, we must go beyond the life of concepts. Recollection must become something different, and we have shown what recollection can indeed become. How do we practice self-recollection? We do not merely picture to ourselves, This was accidental in our life. Such and such a thing befell us. There, There we were in a position of life which we abandoned, and so forth. We must not stop at the concepts. We must make them living, active, as if there stood before us the picture of a personality who had desired and willed all this. We must experience ourselves in this willing. This is a very different experience 
from that of merely recalling concepts. It is an experience of living oneself into other soul forces, if I may put it in that way. This practice of drawing on will and desire in order to fill the soul with a certain content, a practice that has always been known and cultivated in all occult schools, is confirmed by what we know from anthroposophical or similar knowledge of the life of thinking, feeling and willing, and can be understood and explained thereby. Let us be quite clear that in giving a specific content to the life of feeling and will, we must develop something that resembles memory concepts, but does not stop there. It is something that enables us to develop another kind of memory, one that gradually leads us beyond the life enclosed in one incarnation between birth and death. It must be strongly emphasized that the path here indicated is absolutely good and sure, but full of renunciation. It is easier to imagine on all sorts of external grounds that one has been Marie Antoinette or Mary Magdalene or somebody like that in a former incarnation. It is more difficult by the methods described to construct out of what actually exists in the soul a picture of what one really was. For this reason we have to renounce a good deal, for we can readily be deceived. If someone says, quote, Yes, and it is also quite possible to imagine something in relation to our memories that never existed. Close quote. All these things are no real objections. Life itself can provide a criterion for distinguishing real imagination from fancy. Somebody once said to me in a town in South Germany that everything in my book titled Occult Science might be based on simple suggestion. He said suggestion could be so vivid that one could even imagine lemonade so strongly that the taste of it would be in the mouth. And if such a thing is possible, why should it not be possible for what is present in occult science to be based on suggestion? Theoretically, such an objection may be raised. But life brings the reflection that if anyone wishes to show by the example of lemonade how strongly suggestion can work, we must add that they have not understood how to carry the idea to its logical conclusion. They ought to try not only to imagine lemonade, but to quench their thirst with purely imaginary lemonade. Then they would see that it cannot be done. It is always necessary to carry our experiences to their conclusion, and this cannot be done theoretically, but only by direct experience. With the same certainty by which we know that what arises from our memory concepts is something we have experienced, so do the impulses of will we have called forth with regard to the accidents and undesired happenings arise from the depths of the soul as a picture of earlier experiences. We cannot disprove the statement of anyone who says, quote, that may be imagination, close quote, any more than we can disprove theoretically what numerous people imagine they have experienced and quite certainly have not, nor prove to them what it is they really experienced. No theoretical proof is possible in either case. We have shown in this way how earlier experience shines into present experiences and how through careful soul development we really can create for ourselves the conviction, not only a theoretical conviction but a practical conviction, that our soul reincarnates. 
we come to know that it has existed before. There are, however, experiences of a very different kind in our lives, experiences of which, when we recall them in memory, we must say, quote, in the form in which they appear, they do not explain an earlier life to us, close quote. Today I shall give an example of only one kind of such experiences, although the same thing may happen in a hundred, in a thousand different ways. A woman may be walking in a wood, and being lost in thought may forget that the woodland path ends within a few steps at a precipice. Absorbed in her problem, she walks on at such a pace that in two or three steps more it will be impossible for her to stop and she will fall over to her death. But just as she is on the verge, she hears a voice say, Stop! The voice makes such an impression upon her that she stops as though nailed to the spot. She thinks there must be someone who has saved her. She realizes that her life would have been at an end if she had not been pulled up in this way. She looks round and sees nobody. The materialistic thinker will say that owing to some circumstance or other an auditory hallucination had come from the depths of the woman's soul, and it was a happy chance that she was saved in this way. But there may be other ways of looking at the event. That at least should be admitted. I only mention this today for these, quote, other ways, close quote, can only be told, not proved. We may say, quote, processes in the spiritual world have brought it about that at the moment when you reached your karmic crisis, your life was bestowed on you as a gift. If things had gone further without this occurrence, your life would have been at an end. It is now as though a gift was given to you, and you owe this new life to the powers who stand behind the voice, close quote. Many people of the present time might have such experiences if they would only practice real self-knowledge. Such occurrences happen in the lives of many, many people in the present age. It is not that they do not happen, but that people do not pay attention to them, for such things do not always happen so decisively as in the example given. With their habitual lack of attention, people overlook them. The following is a characteristic example of how unobservant people are of what happens around them. I knew a school inspector in a country where a law was passed to the effect that the older teachers, who had not obtained certain certificates, were to be examined. Now the school inspector was an extremely human person, and he said to himself, quote, The young teachers, fresh from college, can be asked any question, but it would be cruel to ask the older teachers, who have been in office for twenty or thirty years, the same questions. I had better question them about the contents of the books from which they have taught the children year after year. And lo, most of the teachers knew nothing of what they themselves had been teaching to their pupils. Yet this man was an examiner who understood how to draw out of people what they knew. This is only one example of how unobservant people are of what takes place around them, even when it concerns their own affairs. We need not then be surprised that things of this kind happen to many people in life, for only by a true, deliberate self-perception do they come to light. If we bring the proper devout attitude to bear on such an event, we may experience a very definite feeling, the feeling that from the day our life was given to us as a gift, its course from then onward must assume a special direction, 
That is a good feeling and works like a memory process when we say to ourselves, quote, I had reached a karmic crisis. There, my life ended. Close quote. If we steep ourselves in this devout feeling, we may experience something that makes us realize, quote, this is not a memory concept such as I have often experienced in life. It is something of a very special nature. Close quote. In the next lecture, I shall be able to speak more fully of what can only be indicated today. For this is how a great initiate of modern times tests those whom he thinks fit to be his followers. For the events that are to take us into the spiritual world proceed from spiritual facts that happen around us, or from a right understanding of them. And such a voice, calling as it does to many people, is not to be regarded as an hallucination. For through such a voice, the leader whom we call by the name of Christian Rosenkreutz speaks to those whom he chooses from among the multitude to be his followers. The call proceeds from that individuality who lived in a special incarnation in the 13th century, so that those who have an experience of this kind have a sign, a token of recognition, through which they can enter the spiritual world. There may not be many as yet able to recognize this call, but anthroposophy will work in such a way that if not in this incarnation, later on people will give heed to it. With most people who have such an experience today, it is not completed in the sense that one can say of them in this incarnation, quote, they have met the initiate who has appointed them his own, close quote. One could say it rather of their life between their last death and their present birth. This is an indication that something happens in the life between death and rebirth, that we experience there important events, perhaps more important than in our life here between birth and death. It may happen, and in individual cases it does, that certain persons now belonging to Christian Rosenkreutz came to him in a former incarnation, but for most people the destiny that is reflected in such an event occurred in their last life between death and rebirth. I am not saying this to recount something sensational, nor even for the sake of relating this particular occurrence, but for a special reason. And I should like to add something else in this connection, from an experience I have often had in our movement. I have often found that things I have said are easily forgotten, or retained in a different form from that in which they were said. For this reason I sometimes emphasize important and essential things several times over, not in order to repeat myself. Therefore today I repeat that there are many people at the present time who have passed through an experience such as has been described. The point is not that the experience is not there, but that it is not remembered because proper attention has not been paid to it. Therefore, this should be a consolation to those who say to themselves, quote, I find nothing of the kind, so I do not belong to those who have chosen in this way. Close quote. They can have the assurance that there are countless people at the present time who have experienced something of the kind. I reaffirm this only in order that the real reason for saying these things may be understood. Such things are told in order to draw our attention again and again to the fact that in a concrete case, and not through abstract theories, 
we must find the relation of our soul life to the spiritual worlds. Anthroposophical spiritual science should be for us not merely a theoretical conception of the world, but an inner life force. We should not merely know, quote, there is a spiritual world to which humanity belongs, close quote, but as we go through life, we should not only take account of things that stimulate our thinking through the senses, but should grasp with comprehension and the connections that show us, quote, I have my place in the spiritual world, a definite place, close quote. The real concrete place of the individual in the spiritual world, that is the essential point to which we are calling attention. In a theoretical sense, people try to establish that the world may have a spiritual element and that the human being is not to be considered in a materialistic sense, but may have an inner spiritual element. Our particular conception of the world differs from this, for it says to the individual, quote, this is your special connection with the spiritual world, close quote. More and more we shall be able to ascend to those things that can show us how we must view the world in order to perceive our connection with the spirit of the great world, the macrocosm. The end of Lecture 2